Our sermon passage this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, you can find this again in the Pew Bible, page 802. The black Pew Bible is there in front of you, page 802. Uh, Since the school year started, we have been working through Mark's Gospel, and today we bring this series to an end uh, by looking at the very justifiably famous story of Christ's resurrection And we're going to highlight some of the aspects of that story that Mark in particular wants to tell us about. And I think it'll be uh, encouraging to us all as we are reminded of these events. I'll begin in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. It was back in the 19th century that a surgeon once famously called cancer the emperor of all maladies. He went on to call it the king of terrors. I know in our church family this past year, since last Easter, we've had a lot of brush-ups with the emperor of maladies, a lot of interactions that we didn't want and didn't ask for with cancer. And yet, as I was thinking about the resurrection hope that we think about Sunday by Sunday here at Greater Hope, and especially on Easter Sunday, I couldn't help but think that behind the emperor of maladies is an even greater emperor. (laughs) Because think about this. Since that man in the 19th century said it was the emperor of maladies, look how far we've come. Look how many advancements we've developed. We can diagnose cancer. We can uh, treat it better. We can even prevent it better. We can see it when it's coming. We can catch it early. All those things. And yet, cancer's still with us. And even if today, and we pray this would happen, today if we found a cure for all cancer and it would just eliminate it, we would still have to contend with the emperor behind the emperor. Death itself, which comes calling to every person and has always terrified the human heart. It's into that world, this world, that Jesus Christ died and was raised. I want to encourage you with this this morning. Mark, in his telling of the resurrection, does what Mark does. And by now, since we've been talking about Mark for a while, you know how Mark rolls. He is the sparest of writers. He does not like flowery sentences. He likes to tell you straight up like a newspaper reporter all the facts and only the facts. 
He chooses his details carefully, and he doesn't tend to dress things up to make them seem better than they were. He just tells you with all the warts and everything. And that's the way he tells the Easter story. There are warts here. There are scared people running for their lives, and yet in the middle of that world of fear, there is the fact that the body of Jesus, which was crucified, came back together again and became alive, never to die again. Here's the hope of Easter. Let me tell you this. Easter brings real hope to a real problem for real people. Do we have any real people in the house this morning with real problems, with real struggles like fear and doubt? Sometimes it may even feel like the things we come to church to talk about Sunday by Sunday are way over here somewhere and real life is way down here somewhere. Sometimes it may feel like there is no connection between the two, like we just come here to get some wishful thinking and then we go right back to the way things really are. And yet I want to show you, Mark doesn't want us to walk away thinking that because the resurrection happened in real space and time, in this world. There was an address for the tomb. A dusty street in Jerusalem, the tomb was really there, and really out of that tomb came a real body. Amen? Not sure if y'all are listening to me this morning. Amen? A real body came out of the grave. Wow. Let's look at Mark as he shows us this real hope for real people by just simply answering the three questions that he answers. We're just going to go through the text. First of all, who saw the resurrection when it happened? Who saw the signs of it? Secondly, what did they see and what did they hear? And then lastly, how did they initially respond? Let's think about that briefly this morning, and I think we'll see the encouragement of a real hope. First of all, who saw the resurrection? Well, this is really realistic, actually. The way that he tells it there in verses 1, 2, and 3 is super realistic. First of all, three women see the resurrection, and they're named for us. If you'll look there in verse 1, Mary Magdalene on the one hand. We know about her, right? She was possessed by seven demons once upon a time. And it was those demons that Jesus drove out, set the woman free, and she became one of Jesus' most devoted followers. With her was Mary, the mother of James. James was another one of the disciples of Jesus. And then there was also Salome, which most people agree was, her name also was known as Joanna. And most people agree she was the mother of two other disciples, James, the other James, and John. There's a lot of Jameses in the world at this time. Two mothers of two Jameses. And Mary Magdalene, who had been delivered from seven demons, are the ones that God chooses to go out to the tomb at the sunrise of the first Easter to see the empty tomb and to hear the message of the angels. Now, I want you to think about this because there's a little bit of cultural distance between us and them. Back then, did you know that the testimony of women was not accepted as valid? By most people. Did you know that? You might say, well, I don't like that. Neither do I, right? We don't, thankfully, we don't do things like this anymore. But back in the day, especially among the Romans, they did not allow women even to testify in court. They did not believe they were reliable because they had this idea that women were too emotional to bear accurate testimony. 
And in fact, in this story, the way it unfolds, we kind of see it, right? These women see it and they react very emotionally as we're going to see all of us would react. And yet Mark doesn't try to cover up that inconvenient fact. He tells it to you like it is. It was three women and those women were scared to death when they saw the empty tomb. That's the way it happened. Now, this is interesting, and it may cause you to chuckle a little bit, that in the second century, there was a Roman philosopher named Celsus who wrote against Christianity, against it. And he said, Christianity can't be true because the written records are based on the testimony of women. He read Mark, and he said, yeah, of course, it's not true. But I want you to consider for a second. What are the alternatives? The alternative to this not being true is that the disciples were very ashamed that their Savior and their Lord died. And so therefore they scrambled and got their PR machine going and they wrote this account to save face. Well, if they wrote this account just to save face, why in the world would they choose to write into the account the testimony of three scared women? That they knew their fellow Jews and the Romans would not accept. Actually, this morning, I think the opposite of what Celsus thought is actually true. The reason why Mark says three women saw the empty tomb and heard the angel speak is because, catch this, three women saw the empty tomb and heard the angel speak. This is an element of realism in the story, an element of, of, of real life accounting and reporting. Three women were chosen by God to be the witnesses to the resurrection so that God could shame our supposed wisdom with his greater wisdom. This is what God always does. He chooses those things that are, seem to be weak in the eyes of the world to shame the strong things. He chooses the things that people regard as nothing to shame the things we think are something. And so he chooses Mary and Mary and Salome as his first heralds to go and share the good news with the boys, who, by the way, were nowhere to be seen in the scene. They were too scared to be seen in public. And so God sent and appointed these three to see a real-life event taking place. The resurrection is not to be taken as a metaphor or a symbol or some mystical, spiritual idea that's not rooted in real life? No, I'm, I'm telling you. In the Bible, the resurrection is presented as an actual resurrection of an actual body at an actual place and time. It's told that way. As one writer says, the molecules of Jesus were re-knit together. The amino acids were rekindled. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that was pierced and withered and paused was regathered. Let us not mock God, the writer says, with metaphor and analogy and sidestepping and transcendence. Let us not make the event a parable, he says, but let us walk through the door that Easter presents to us. A door has been opened through a, through a wall that nobody has ever been able to open before. 
the emperor of all maladies, the king of terrors, not just cancer, but death itself, was opened up wide by an actual resurrection from the grave seen by eyewitnesses. These women were significant, you see, not just because they were women, but because they were the only ones who had seen the whole process take place. If you go back in your Bible to Mark 15, you'll see there in verse 40 that the women were there at the cross. All the boys had already scattered. The women were still there at a distance watching Jesus die on the cross. They were there when Jesus breathed his last breath. They saw that he was dead, dead, like really dead. He didn't faint. He didn't swoon. He didn't just go into a temporary coma. He died. They saw it. And then in chapter 15, verse 47, they were there at the tomb when Joseph of Arimathea took the corpse. That's the word used, the corpse, the dead body, wrapped in linen. They were there when they saw that body laid in the tomb. They saw the exact place where he was laid. Those same women, they're named those three times by name. To emphasize, these women saw him dead, they saw him buried, and they were the same ones who first saw him rise. As if to say, listen, don't make this a metaphor. It was real. He died for real. He was buried for real. He was raised for real. Do you all hear the good news in that? See, just an idea in your, in your head or in your heart is not that, that great. Because ideas don't change things in real world. Y'all tracking with me there? An idea alone does not change things in the real world, especially not something like death. It doesn't matter how many times I say, I'm sorry for your loss to someone. It doesn't bring them back. But you see, Jesus did something more than simply say, I'm sorry for your loss. Easter is about more than just, well, he's alive in my heart or His memory lives on because we're talking about him. No, he lives. His body lives. So that death would no longer have its hold on us. This morning, do you feel like God's far away from you? We get there sometimes, don't we? We feel like God's a million miles away. The good news of the Bible seems like false news, fake news. The real stuff seems like the mess that happens in our lives. All that stuff is just, well, it's pie in the sky. I want you to see how Easter is heaven kissing earth. It's the power of God wed to the suffering and sin and death of man. And guess who won when the two were joined together? Well, it was no contest. Jesus won. That leads us to our second thing today. Not only was the resurrection witnessed by the women, but let's look at what they saw and heard in particular because this is an amazing message that they received, starting there in verse 4. In verse 4, it tells us that looking up, they saw that the stone, which they didn't expect to be moved, was already moved. In fact, this is another uh, detail that really shows the realism of Mark's account. He's being realistic. Because these women had bought spices, they had made all the preparations to go and anoint the body of Jesus, but in all their hurry, they had forgotten about that one little fact, the tomb is locked, which is what a stone was in that day. In that day, they didn't bury people in the ground, they buried them in the side of a mountain or hill, and there was a hole 
that you entered into. Well, in order to prevent grave robbers and all the rest, they would roll giant stones. I mean, we're talking like tons of weight, tons of pounds would roll over the top of the entrance so that no one could move it except with lots of people and great force. Well, these women had on their way to the tomb totally forgotten until they got halfway there that they were going to have to contend with the stone. And so you can imagine their surprise in verse 4 when they looked up and saw that it was already rolled back and they even noted just how large the stone was. This was an extra large stone. Jesus' tomb was double padlocked by the stone. And yet there it was, to the side. Curious, verse 5, they enter into the tomb to see what happened. And what do they see? Well, you might say an angel. And, And actually that is accurate because the other gospel writers tell us this was an angel. Actually, there were, seems to be more than one angel that was there. But Mark only tells us about the one because he loves understatement. And he doesn't even describe him as an angel. He simply says they saw a young man sitting on the right side of the tomb, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. They were frightened. Now, we know this was an angel, not only because the other gospels tell us this, but because they're alarmed. If it was just a young man, they probably wouldn't have been too afraid. Not only that, they could tell in the darkness of the tomb in the early morning hours that their robe, his robe was white. How could they tell that? Matthew tells us because the robe glowed. He describes it as an astronomical robe. He uses that word in Greek, astronomical. It was like a star shining out in the tomb. It was amazing. But Mark, again, he's trying to show us this is real. A young man in a white robe sitting there announcing the gospel. Now think about that. What does it communicate that the stone was rolled away and inside was an empty ledge where the body used to be and on that ledge sat a messenger of God? What does that tell you? Well, death has not only been defeated For a temporary time, death has been really defeated. Uh, There has been an utter destruction of death. Stones are moving. Angels are appearing. Bodies are gone. This is a big deal. And so the angel brings a message, a sermon, if you will, the first Easter sermon there in verses 6 and 7. And like every good sermon, it has three points. Now, for real, look at it. It's got three points. The first point is simple. He has risen. Do not be alarmed, the angel said. You seek Jesus, who was crucified. You know he was crucified. You saw it. You saw it happen. But he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him right here to my left side. This is where Jesus once laid. You saw that too. You saw Joseph laying the corpse here. He's not here. He's risen. First point of the sermon. That's a pretty good point. Death has been defeated. Second point of the sermon, even better. But, verse 7, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before y'all to Galilee. Now think about it. 
go tell his disciples and Peter. Quiz. Y'all ready for a Bible quiz? Right? Think about it. Where were the disciples when this was taking place? Where was Peter? You, you can say it out loud. It's okay. Hiding. In a locked room, hiding. They were afraid to go out in public. What had they just done in the past, say, eight hours? Abandoned Jesus. Every one of them had run away. Every one of them had gone to hide. Peter had done even worse. He had abandoned Jesus with his words. He had even called down curses on himself to say he didn't even know Jesus. Think about that and listen again to the angel's second point. Go tell his disciples and Peter that I'm going before you. Do y'all hear the good news in it? He is risen, therefore there is forgiveness. Those very people who have turned their back on me, I will be with them. I choose to be with them again. Even Peter. When you get there, ladies, the disciples are not going to want to listen to you because they're going to feel very unworthy because they have all been cowards. But I want you to tell them anyway, I'm going before them. And when you get there and tell the rest of the disciples, they may believe you, but Peter certainly won't believe you. And so I want you to take him aside and tell him by name, looking him in the eyes, Peter, Jesus told me to tell you. You denied me, but I will not deny you. You called down a curse on yourself, and I was cursed for you on the cross. And now I'm raised that you might have life. Peter, you are my Peter. Disciples, you are my disciples. I will never leave you or forsake you. Can't you hear that? Forgiveness. The angel's third point. He is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. You will see him. Not only will you look upon him physically, which, of course, see him, that means you will look upon him physically, but it's more than that. Um, if I was going on a trip to, say, Memphis, and I have family in Memphis, I might say, might call my family, hey, I'm going to Memphis. I want to see you while I'm there. What do I mean by that? I want to see you. Does it mean I just want to see you from across the street and wave at you? Hey, I see you. I see your physical body. Good. No. We know what that means. It means I want to spend time with you. I want it to be like it was. I want us to have a reunion. I want us to enjoy the fellowship that we once had. Jesus is saying, because I am risen, there is forgiveness. And because there is forgiveness, there's fellowship again. There's a reunion between God and man again. Even those who have offended and rebelled against God will once again know him face to face. He is risen. The angel preached this message to the women to go and to share to the men. And I want to tell you, this is a message that you and I need to hear desperately. We live in a cynical culture, don't we? Just cynical. We have a hard time believing that people can change. We have a hard time believing things can change. 
we especially have a hard time believing that something like death could ever possibly be reversed. We're just slow to believe those things. And we've got many reasons for being cynical, but being cynical for all its for all the good that you can say about it has this one fatal flaw. It doesn't take into account that there might actually be a power in this world greater than evil. That there actually might be a God who is not just far away somewhere having a vacation in heaven while we suffer on earth. But a God who really wants to make his home among human beings made in his image on this earth. And Easter, I want to tell you, if you'll listen to the message of the resurrection, it proves all of the above. Isn't it funny that we think cynicism, negativity, is the grown-up way to respond to pain and suffering? Fairy tales are for children, we think. A really mature person just looks at life and says, it is what it is, and it will be what it will be. I've been there, done that, seen the movie. I know how it ends. Well, the Bible offers us something better than that. True maturity, according to Scripture, is not forgetting to factor in the greatest factor there is. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the resurrection of the Son of God, which changes death, the most unchangeable thing we can imagine, right? Death and taxes. We even joke about how unchangeable it is. Yet he's able to change that. Maybe he'll change taxes too. Wow. Scripture later tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus has removed the sting of death. Thought about that picture this week. and Did you know that a honeybee when it stings a mammal like us, dies. You probably knew that. It's not true of some other bees because their stingers are tougher, but a honeybee has a very thin stinger, and it's, the way a bee stinger works is it's tied into all their innards because they have all kinds of like poisons and stuff that come through their body down into the stinger and all that. So it's all tied in to their innards. And when a honeybee pierces the very thick skin of a mammal, thicker than other creatures, it can't pull it out because there's too much resistance. And so when it pulls to come out, out comes the stinger, and with the stinger, out come the innards of the bee. And it takes just a few minutes for the bee to die. Happy Easter. (laughs) Pleasant story, right? I want you to think about that, though. When the Bible says Jesus took the sting out of death, that's what it's talking about. What happens when death stings you? What happens when death stings me? I am no match for death, right? The stinger goes in and out, no problem. Death is unfazed. It takes me out and just goes right about its business. One person dies, another person dies, another person dies, another person dies, and death still is death. But listen, when death stung Jesus, 
because he was God, because he was a perfect man who did not deserve to die, the skin, so to speak, of Jesus' heart was so thick that death could not pull out without leaving its insides on the ground. Death in Jesus' death has died. The sting is gone. You say, well, I'm still going to die. Yes, but you don't have to take the sting. Yes, you will die. We all will. But in Jesus Christ, death doesn't have to be something that brings you not only into an eternal annihilation, but it brings you into hell itself. It brings you into judgment. That doesn't have to be true of you. The stinger has been taken out so that death, rather than being your destruction, might actually become a doorway into life. Think about that. Death is completely reversed. When the women heard this that first Easter, can you imagine what they felt? As you're hearing it this morning, can you think about what you feel? Oh, 21st century cynical person that you are and that I am, what do we feel when we hear, He is risen, you are forgiven, you will have fellowship, there is no more sting in death. That leads us to the final thing, and I want to tell you, this last thing is the best thing. How the women initially respond in verse 8. Now, when you read verse 8, you might experience some disappointment. It says, they went out and fled from the tomb. That They ran from the tomb as hard as they could run. For trembling and astonishment. Literally, the word trembling is the word traumas, trauma. And astonishment is the word ecstasis, ecstasy. Trauma and ecstasy simultaneously seized them. And at first they said nothing to anyone, for they were very afraid. The end. Does that leave you with a little disappointment? We like happy endings, don't we? Uh, movies that don't end with happy endings, they win Oscars, but they don't sell tickets. Everybody says, oh, how artistic. No happy ending, but nobody wants to watch it. Because something about the human heart just hums to the tune of a happy ending. It's built into the universe. And so when we read the way Mark tells the story, it just seems like it leaves us hanging. You just have women fleeing away in terror, in trauma, from the tomb. And yet I want to encourage you this morning that there's something about the way Mark tells it that can bring hope uniquely to each of our hearts. Because you see, Easter happened not for the benefit of spiritually strong and muscular people who acted immediately heroically after they saw the empty tomb. Easter happened for the weak, for the discouraged, for the terrified, for sinners, for those who had no other hope, who were at the end of their rope. That's who Easter happened for. Guess what? That means we're in. 
you're in. You're qualified. You may be here today and think, I am unqualified to benefit from Easter. You don't know how bad I've been. You don't know how my year has gone. You don't know what has happened to me and how many doubts and bitter thoughts I've had towards God. Yeah, I don't know. He knows. And guess what? He chooses these very same people to benefit from his resurrection. Here they were fleeing away. And yet they were chosen by God to be the first recipients of the gospel. Now we know later they would be reassured by another appearance of Jesus and they would in fact go and tell the disciples and they all would get scared at first and then they would get encouraged. We know the story how it ends. Mark knows we know. But for now he just wants to let it hang. So that every person who hears about Easter for the rest of the history of the world would know. Jesus didn't get out of the grave for those who are strong in themselves. He got out for those who are weak. Let me speak to a couple of kinds of weak people today. First, you may be weak because you have a hard time believing all this. I get it. You may be here and you think, man, this sounds like a fairy tale. Pastor, I don't, I don't know if I can believe it. Well, isn't it comforting that the women could hardly believe it either? That's why they ran away. And yet, notice, them not believing it didn't change the resurrection one iota. And so guess what? Even if you don't believe in the resurrection this morning, the resurrection still happened. And the hope of the resurrection may just catch you in the end. Maybe you can even hear it and feel it this morning, the footsteps of God, so to speak, chasing you down. And I hope he, I hope he catches you. Because no matter how much we may try to run and how much we may try to act out in fear and doubt and unbelief, it does not change the facts. The God who made the world is recreating it. And he started that recreation by raising his son from the dead. Wow. Doubters, you're qualified. Now second, discouraged people. You may say, well, I have always believed in the resurrection of Jesus. Ever since I was a child, I've always believed in it. But you know, it feels so unreal when I go into the problems, the struggles, the suffering of my life, I, I, I feel great on Sunday, I, it feels encouraging, and then I get to Monday. And Tuesday, and Wednesday, and the same thing, one after the other, just the, just the, the basic miseries that we all, from time to time, have to live through. Well, I want you to hear this. The resurrection first benefited a group of discouraged hearts as well as doubting hearts. The women didn't walk away encouraged. They walked away at first discouraged. And yet still the angel preached the sermon. It was still true he is risen. It was still true there is forgiveness because he's risen. And it was still true there can be fellowship with God because you are forgiven because he's risen. Your discouragement does not disqualify you. 
It may not be that you doubt whether the resurrection happened, but you may doubt whether it can be beneficial to you. Well, guess what? You're qualified. Are you afraid this morning? You're qualified. Are you anxious this morning? You're qualified. Are you traumatized this morning? You're qualified. Are you a sinner this morning? You're qualified. The resurrection of Jesus Christ pulls the stinger out of death and benefits real people. Real hope to a real problem for real people. No fairy tales here. Amen.